0: welcome to episode 96 of the 1099 for the week of June 12th, 2017. I am your host, Josiah Renauden, and we're doing something slightly different this week. Uh, last week, Jeff Gersman talking about Giant Bomb, talking about games media. Uh, this week, since I'm a former reviewer for GameSpot and IGN, I miss talking about games critically and talking about games, a single game kind of, you know, at length. Uh, but what I also would really love to do is actually talk to designers, which is something that this podcast has given me a great opportunity to do so with me today because we're going to start off with a game that i've been playing a hell of a lot of is self-described game communication and marketing dude from motion twin which just put dead cells out on early access steve philby steve thank you so much for doing this how are you doing today not too bad man how are you doing i'm doing great you're all the way in france right yeah yeah i
1: am you know, in spite of my accent we're actually based in bordeaux so in the southwest of france if you're into wine it's a pretty cool place to be
0: I've always, with a last name like Renaud, I've always wanted to visit some part of France at some point. That is, this is my this is my real reason. I'm gonna somehow plan a trip exactly to your studio. It's my weird long con. Have you on this podcast?
1: You you would absolutely be very much welcome over here. We, we could show <laughs> you a real good time. I think.
0: So I rarely play PC games to be honest, but Dead Cells had me really like dusting off this gaming laptop I had installing what felt like at least a dozen updates and yelling at my computer like few games have had me do recently in a positive way. Uh, it's, it's this really wonderful mix of Castlevania, Rogue Legacy, a bit of Dark Souls. There's a lot of things going on. Um, but for you, as someone who's involved in a lot of these meetings, what was the actual kind of pitch when the team set out to make Dead Cells? What was your, all right, here's what we're going for idea right from the start?
1: Yeah, that that's actually not how it went down at all. Um, motion to really? is is, as I was sort of saying before the show, a funny uh, setup because we're a cooperative society. So we do things differently. There's no real structure in the sense of someone's going to come in with an idea uh, or a pitch and then we're going to put together a team around that idea. Basically, how, how this game came about was uh, we were working on something completely different. Uh, a game that we were calling Horde Zero so it was a uh, sort of like a spiritual successor to a a browser game that we made that was really successful particularly over here in France Uh, in English it's called Daitonite and uh, it was supposed to be uh, this successor was supposed to be like a a multiplayer online cross platform free free-to-play tower defense co-opetition type game, and that was sort of like the. <laughs>
0: That's so many different buzzwords.
1: Exactly, it's it, it, you know that was sort of the beginning uh, of, of work on this on this thing, and um, and, and so as we started iterating uh, over this, at some point uh, we wanted to take the game and show it off to to journalists and to people in uh, at the at Gamescom, and so we made a solo version of the game. Uh, so that we can put it on tablets and just run around with it and show it to people. And uh, uh, Nicholas Cannas, the head of uh, Shiro Games, the guys that just put out Northgard, he he picked it up and he looked and he was like, man, the solo version is heaps good. Why don't you just do that? Um, and so from there, we, we rebooted it and said, okay, well, we'll get rid of all of this free-to-play online multiplayer business and we'll just do a solo version of it. And if that goes well, then we'll extend it to to um, to an online multiplayer version. Uh, and then at some stage we had a, an artist coming a guy by the name of bastian sanchez uh, he's, a, he's a pretty cool dude really sort of handy when it comes to game design so we had a lot of discussions back and forth between our lead designer seb uh, bastian and the rest of the team and at some stage he was like man you got two choices you either take ownership of this tower defense thing or you take ownership of this sort of action platformer-y thing that you've mixed in there and you do something with that. And so we sort of let that percolate for a while and and then we came out with this action platformer game that had nothing to do with what we started with <laughs> in the beginning. So, yeah, there was there was no real pitch uh, at the beginning. Uh, but once we, once we settled on the idea of saying, okay, uh, we're a company who's traditionally made browser-based games, we've tried a little bit of time on mobile and... We didn't really like that, and now we, we're going to change. We're going to do a radical depart from what, we've, from what we've traditionally done. Once we actually accepted that and sat down and said, okay, we're going to make a game. It's going to be for us. It's going to be a platformer. It's going to be hardcore. It's going to be aimed at, squarely at the, the PC audience uh, and eventually with console guys in mind if we do well. Um, and that, that was a huge risk for us and so once we came to that point then we arrived at, at a pitch of okay and what are we going to call this thing and we were trying to communicate the, the aspects of the game you know we were like oh well, we got like roguelike in there because that was half the team we were like oh yeah we love Binding of Isaac we love Rogue Legacy we love all these kind of games and then you got the other half of the team who were saying yeah well you know we really like exploration and we like Castlevania and we like you know these sort of Metroidvania type games and, and one of the developers uh, I think it was actually the lead artist Tom he, he piped up and he was like Rogue And uh, it it sort of went from there, so that's how it went down.
0: How much of that initial work did you, you mentioned the tower defense, how much did you actually just throw out? Like, was it kind of difficult to look at some of that and be like, man, the stuff we had worked on initially for this kind of starting idea, we're just throwing out the window. Like, was that difficult?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's always a, a difficult process for for developers and designers to go through, particularly developers if you've just spent, you know, like months of your lives, you know, putting thousands and thousands of lines of code down. That hurts. But it's it's definitely a process that I think game developers, uh particularly new developers, need to learn to be good at. Um and I mean we watch a lot of extra credits and a lot of uh, GDC Vault stuff and follow along with what's going on in the industry. And so when we're listening to people saying fail faster, uh just take it and run with it, or if it feel if it doesn't feel good, or get rid of it, and, and be ruthless, and these kind of things, and, and we start applying them to our own uh, situations. So when someone says to us, "Hey, this solo version is great," why aren't you doing a solo version? Or when someone says, "Hey, why don't you just take ownership of this decision and make an action platformer?" We actually think about that seriously, yeah. um, and so it might take time. Uh, for example, to go from tower defense to action platformer, that that took maybe what two months, two three months, but once Seb Came in with a machete and hacked uh, away at the game. Uh, we all sort of felt good about what happened, in spite of the blood and the guts everywhere.
0: So, why early access? Because you know, there's there's that benefit that you get people to kind of bang at your game for a bit early to maybe work out a few things that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. Because I don't, I I doubt you're a massive team, but. Uh, what was kind of the decision making process there and what benefits have you seen from being able to put the game out early and get that early feedback?
1: Yeah. Uh, early access was, was my baby. Um, because I'm a, I'm a big fan of clay games. So I've spent way too much time playing and stuff together and stuff. Uh, and I sort of followed along with the early access of that. And so that, that was my first experience with early access, um, so I came in the, the, to the guys and said, Hey, well, we're going to make this roguelike game, which is going to have, you know, hundreds, potentially hundreds of items in it. Uh, and then we're going to add a Metroidvania site over it. So that means, you know, tons and tons of, of, of handmade chunks and level design pieces of, of, of a world that we have to put together and test and make sure they're interesting. That's going to take a, a village. You know, this yeah. is, a, it takes a, a village to raise a child. And so our little baby needed someone to look after it. And, and, You know, we do a lot of internal testing. We've got a lot of friends, but at the end of the day, early access really offers you this audience of people who are super interested in getting involved in games, uh, even though they're probably not going to be as polished as, as they should be uh, when you release a game to the public. And so it was really, it was really about that. Uh, I sort of, I saw the necessity from the game design uh, perspective. Then, obviously, you know, that little evil part of my marketer soul said, hey, well, this is an opportunity to build a, a community um, around the game, build buzz, build hype, and build towards a successful launch. Uh, so, yeah, when I initially suggested it, obviously, most developers, I think, uh, I mean, a lot of even just a lot of uh, PC players in general have had bad experiences with early access. So there was a lot of pushback. It was like, good God, why would we do that? We're just going re- <laughs> to ruin our reputations. It's going to be a nightmare. Um, but as I sort of started talking them through it, saying, Okay, well, let's let's look at Clay Games. How what have they done? How how have they done this right? What are these guys doing and how come they can do it and and why can't we? And then, okay, what about Vlambeer and Rami and the guys they're doing it right. What, what's so special about what they're doing? Or Red Hook, what have those guys done? I mean, even more recently, the guys from Astroneer, I mean there are there are a lot of counter-examples, and I think with early access what you find is a class of developer of sort of more like the professional indies or I guess what some people would call like that triple E triple I indie uh who were who were taking ownership of of early access and saying, Okay, this is a tool. We're gonna use it as Valve I think intended it to be used. Uh we're gonna build games, collaborate with the community and uh yeah we're gonna try and try and make something really cool. So so that was like the whole philosophy or the, the, the idea and strategy behind the early access to begin with
0: yeah it has to be a leap of faith to a certain extent because even at the start of dead cells you i think you have a message in there saying like hey just letting you know like this isn't done it's you know it is early access so if you see things this isn't the final product because there has to be that fear as someone who's worked on this for so long on the team where you're like man what if there are just too many bugs at the start, and it leaves a bad taste in people's mouths, and they're just not willing to go back to it. I mean, for you, do you have plans to kind of ramp up certain marketing efforts as the game gets closer to releasing? Because there's so many early access games when I, I never really know if they're done. I always assume they're out or, like, they're constantly in beta. Like, is is there a hard release date you have in your head, and are you uh kind of have this game plan for all right as we get closer we're going to make sure this gets back in everyone's consciousness
1: yeah so i mean without risking uh an office based lynching uh <laughs> i think i can probably give you sort of my idea of what i'd like to do um obviously the developers are going to turn around looking and be like dude there's a there's a physical limit to how many like lines of code we can type in a day so <laughs> shush but, uh, I mean, what I would like to do if all goes well is, you know, obviously work on adding updates and adding the content. So we're about 50%, 40, 50% of content, uh, at the early LA access launch. We've done one major update, which was mostly gameplay focused. We've got a, another major update. We're going to add a level and a, a mini boss, uh, right in, sort of in the middle of a Steam sale period. Um, and then we'll, we'll keep doing that every month. We'll release new content, blah, blah, blah. But what we want to do is, start discussions with the console guys, obviously. And we want to try and use uh, the announcements for, hey, we're going to come to Switch or, hey, we're going to come to PS4 mm-hmm. uh, and and build that up with updates as we go uh, announcing release dates and eventually arriving at uh, a ship, all three of the big ones and a uh, PC uh, probably between March and May of 2018. So that's that's sort of like the the marketing and the strategy side. Now, from a produ- production perspective, we've got to make sure that we can actually pull that off. Um, technically, we use a language that's pretty easy to port. We use hacks so we can target a lot of uh, a lot of platforms quite easily. But you know, there's there's still a physical limit to how many lines of code you can type in a day. So <laughs> we'll see how we go.
0: Does this early success you've had from early access? You think actually maybe help you in getting this on the switch in getting this in the ps4 because it's a a crowded genre like if you just say like oh we're making another like roguelike or we're making a, a kind of rogue legacy style castlevania game Some people will immediately roll their eyes because there's just so many of those out on Steam. But because people have responded to Dead Cells so positively early on, do you think you can kind of use that as like, hey, Nintendo or hey, Sony, here's the reviews? Or maybe they've already seen the reviews. Let's expedite this process and make sure we get some sort of deal going.
1: Yeah, that. I mean, from my perspective, that was the biggest uh, risk, like strategic risk from looking at it uh, as a marketer from the beginning uh, as soon as we dropped like the tower defense aspects when we had when we had something that was like a mix of between an action platform and tower defense that's kind of a little bit unique you know there's not a lot of stuff like that out there uh but when you say we're going to make a 2d side scroller action platform a roguelite you're like yeah okay <laughs> uh just another one to throw in the pile and and that was the reaction that we had i think, initially. Uh, a lot of people were saying, "Okay, it, it's cool, it looks good, but but why should I play this game? Why should I go further than the first run?" Um, and yeah, so with this with this early success, that I think has definitely changed things. I mean, we are actually already in discussion oh, wow. with uh, all three of the the guys, uh, the console guys. But you know it's a it's a slow process. They've got their way of doing things, and, and we don't want to we don't want to jeopardize our relationship with them by announcing anything too soon. So it's at the moment we're we're just at that point where it's like, hey guys, we have got this thing. It's it's really cool. It's it's working pretty well, and they're saying, yeah, that's that's nice. So let's let's go forward. Let's talk about it. Let's see what we can do. So yeah, yeah, definitely gonna capitalize on that that inertia and go forward.
0: Yeah, it seems like your early access gamble totally paid off. Congratulations, that's awesome. Uh and i am always fascinated kind of about the the marketing side of it and how you're angling it but i mean dead cells is also super fun to play <laughs> spoiler it's really fun uh, one thing that stands out to me about the game is really how it feels i mean it in my mind it plays better than other you know action platformer roguelike games out there there's there's weight to the rolls the slashes or even when you pull back a bow and uh one of my favorite things about it, just a little tiny minutia of it, is not taking damage immediately when you're touching enemies versus a game like Rogue Legacy where if you're kind of terrified to bump into anything because you have so little health to deal to work with. And when you die, it's, it's enough of a penalty that if you're deep in a run, you're avoiding people in a way that in Dead Cells, I feel like I'm more reliant on my actual combat skills versus my avoidance. So how important was it for the team to nail the actual feel of the game? And how difficult was it to really include so many weapons in the game that feel different from one another
1: yeah that that was the most time consuming part of the development I think uh, over the last what over the last year I guess we span well sebastian Bernard he's our he's our lead uh, gameplay programmer and our lead game designer uh, he's kind of a little bit of a you know a feeling Nazi when it comes to playing the game mm. um, and and then we're all quite critical as well so for example when we first began we had a dash instead of a roll uh and i had been playing uh mamadora river under moonlight and that's kind of got a nice role in it and so i was sort of saying to the guys hey you have try out this game like test out this and you know and then a couple of the others were like yeah i think the role would be better because the dash just doesn't sort of feel right um and we had arguments about that for a long time and said sort of resisted and then eventually came around and put in a roll instead of, of a dash. And so again it's that iterative process of being critical about okay, well the dash is going to get you this distance, but then you have to turn around or you know, it's not quite as ergonomic as a, as it would feel. Um so there's that side of it, you know, the, the team collaboration, critical thinking, and that kind of thing. But then there's also just Seb and the way he approaches it, and the references that he has for the game. Um, the combat is actually quite heavily based on uh, on fighting games. So you're going to talk about like Street Fighter uh, and these kind of things. So for example, uh, whenever you do a critical hit, uh, the game actually freezes for a frame. Uh, then it'll it will actually slow down for a couple of milliseconds. You know, at the same time. You've got a big squirt of blood coming out. You've got a unique impact sound that's happening, uh, and so like the combination of all of those things come together to give the particular weight to the particular weapon that you're talking about. And so you know there'll be a longer slowdown, a longer wind up for bigger weapons. And so he pays excruciating amounts of attention to these kind of little details, and that's and that's how the weapons get their feeling. It's actually each and every weapon has its own animation and the animation is tweaked to the gameplay and the feeling that we want for the weapon. So yeah, to to, to ask, uh, to answer the question about how difficult it was to get to that point, uh, we knew that we wanted to do that right from the beginning. Uh, Tom and Seb, uh, Tom's our, our lead artist uh, and animator and Seb's the gameplay guy. They sort of sat down and said, okay, well, we're a small team. I'm going to be one guy doing the gameplay and you're going to be one guy doing all of the animations and the characters. How can we make our, our, our production flow, uh, workflow in a way that will allow us to do what we want to do? And so I don't know if you've noticed with the, the sprites, but uh, all of the characters are actually done in 3D. Mm. And the reason that we did that is because once you, once you do a model, rig it uh, and set it up, you can change an animation super quickly. And so then we export that animation into a 2D sprite sheet and pick out the, the interesting frames that we want uh, with a little homebrew program that we made. So instead of if, if Seb says, Oh, you know, what, it would be cool if we slowed down this animation or if we, you know, sped up this part or whatever. And Tom, instead of having to go back to the drawing board and literally redraw the whole thing, he just goes, Okay, no worries, changes the, the 3D animation, re-exports and sends it. And so that allows us to be quite pedantic and quite particular about anything and everything in, in terms of animation and feeling of weapons.
0: It seems like you'd almost have to be that way with this game because you're serving so many masters when you are a kind of Castlevania type game, when you are a, like you said, the combat's almost a fighting game, but you also have these Souls roots and kind of at the the core for me of a Souls game is difficulty, but it has to feel fair. There's a certain, um, like, you don't want to suddenly feel like I did the right thing, but I still died because this enemy did a weird thing or the game didn't react the way I wanted to. So there's an unrelenting difficulty, but um, The Surge is an example. I recently completed The Surge and I enjoyed it, but there's a lot of deaths where I get frustrated where I'm like, the game didn't react the way that it taught me it reacts. So for you, I think a big part of that has to be enemy design. So what went into actually designing the enemy types in the game and how do you balance the difficulty of each new area knowing that sometimes because it is randomly generated to a certain extent, sometimes you just get a tough draw in, in a certain run. So what was kind of the balance between everything like that?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, uh, like when you mentioned the Souls-like thing, I mean, in some of the marketing we used, we sort of, we did that. We we went there, we did the buzzword thing, and we said souls light combat. Um, so what we were really talking about is you identified it. Uh, the, obviously, the difficulty but the difficulty is handled through uh, the monsters, their patterns and the amount of damage that they do to you. Um, And basically how we control that is uh, all linked into the procedural generation and the level design. So uh, as you said, we've got Castlevania influences in there. And I mean, when you think about Castlevania or any type of of Metroidvania, like, I mean, I personally think about like a meticulously designed interconnected world uh, where everything is in a place for a reason. Um, and so then, when you say procedural generation with that, it's kind of like, mm, yeah, not <laughs> really. <laughs> but what we do is we actually design each uh, chunk of the level. So if you walk into a, a little room, then we we placed uh, the platforms, we've we've put all of the jumps in a certain position, and then we take each of those chunks and we stitch them together with the uh, the procedural generation algorithm. And that was a big, big, big part of the the balancing and the iteration process in the beginning. Uh, so, for example, uh, what we would do is we would put a group of enemies together and we'd test, like, okay, we put, like, three of the, the basic zombie together. Can you handle three of those guys at one time? Or what happens if we add in a shield guy? What about a shield guy, a basic zombie, and a, a grenade thrower? And it's the synergy between the monsters that sort of uh, defines the difficulty. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we discovered uh, very quickly after many, many broken controllers and smash screens that... <laughs> Uh, you can't put a guy uh, who can shoot through walls at the top of a ladder or you can't put too many of them at the top of a ladder anyway because it just doesn't feel good it feels uh, unjust because he can just keep spamming you and you have to try and like jump off the chain or the ladder and miss his projectile and like, climb back up and it's just Neh. so we put in a rule into the procedural generation algorithm right none of these guys at the top of ladders um and and, and the same goes with all the groups of the monsters so we've we've actually experimented Tirelessly with okay. What about if you have two shield guys and a and a zombie who can throw something? Well, that kind of sucks as well because the shield guys might just bump you, bump you, bump you, bump you, while the other guy keeps pounding you with the uh, grenades, and and it doesn't feel good because you might say, eh, then how do I attack these guys? I can't actually get in and get them. Um. So yeah, I think it mostly comes down to to placement, how we can how we control the placement of the monsters into the procedural generation, and then obviously you know, more basic things like working out, okay, well, this monster in this level is going to be a certain tier. Uh, so that's how we sort of split up the difficulty and the damage that they deal. Is that fair for the stuff that you've got? Like, are you going to be equipped to deal with this? Or I don't know if you've noticed, but there are sort of speed run doors that we've put into the yes. game. Um, so you can you can take a risk uh, and charge through the game really, really unprepared and arrive, say, for example, at the, at the rooftops level completely naked basically you know you might have level 1 weapons and level 2 skills or something like that but then you're going to get all the cash from the speed run door go to a shop and stock up a, and so in that way we tried to to balance out that that risk reward sort of feeling with the difficulty of the monsters because it's about where you're at in relation to their level so yeah, I think that's probably the broad overview of how we did the the difficulty in, in that sense.
0: It probably has to be weird where you're, you're pulling back on some of your procedural generation because, like you said, that you want it to be random and exciting every single time, but you don't want it to be so random that suddenly you're in a situation that you can't... Maybe you can overcome, but it doesn't feel fair. Like, suddenly you're just not in the right spot. There's not the right number of items to actually buff yourself up even if, if you're not taking any of the shortcuts. Like, did it also did the early access also help you kind of see it from the player's eyes instead of just you guys banging your heads against it over and over? Because you're coming from it from the standpoint of, I fully understand this game because we we goddamn made it. So, like, the difficulty has to be weird to scale in that way, where you have to kind of go from someone's perspective of, maybe they've never played this before, how are they going to deal with these groups of enemies compared to how is our combat guy going to deal with these groups of enemies?
1: Yeah, um... I mean, I guess at the moment, we're probably about 50 50 procedural generation, uh, sort of hand designed, uh, ideas that we've, that we've got in there. Uh, but what we did, be, even before we got to the early access, was lots and lots of playtesting. Uh, cause like you say, I mean, once you've had your head down in a game for a while, it gets to the point where you, you, you're just, you're kind of ruthless at the thing. You know, you can run straight through the game, not touch a, uh, not get touched all the way through to the last boss and be like, okay, good. Half an hour later, that's, that was easy. Yeah. Um, so what we do is we lure people into our office with promises of pizza and beer and <laughs> uh and make them play our game and watch them rage and watch them scream and then do nothing to help them basically. <laughs> we sit back and laugh and and then we and then we take uh, them sit down and say okay, what did you like? What didn't you like? What was frustrating? How did you feel about everything? We run them through a survey and and then we adjust based on that. And and, and that kind of feels weird sometimes because like you say you you're accustomed to having a certain level of difficulty so when you have to nerf things you you kind of start getting a bit nervous uh i think particularly from a game designer's perspective it's a lot easier to to nerf op monsters than it is to actually bump up difficulty because if people have gotten used to a thing uh, then they're going to just feel that it's unjust because they're going to say oh this wasn't that hard before what the hell's going on here um and we did that. We did that all through the process. So we've been doing. We've been running play tests on the game for what the last year, yeah, nine, nine, ten months or something. Uh, you know, once a month, uh, once every two weeks, and, and that might be guys from other studios, or it might just be randoms. Uh, usually, try and stay away from friends and family unless they're qualified. Um, and then what we did was a uh, closed beta. So we had like a uh, thousand people, more than a thousand people, put their name down on our list. Uh, Put their Steam IDs on that list, and then we went through and handpicked people who had a crap ton of time in Roguelites or Roguelikes, uh, or a bunch of time in Dark Souls games, or a bunch of time in Metrovania games. And then we took these groups, gave them keys, threw them into a, a demo version, and said, All right, give us your feedback. And so we spent what, maybe um, two months before, before the early access launch working with these guys in private uh, on like a Steam forum. Saying okay, where are you at with this? Where are you at with that? Um, and then again, before we launched, we actually dished out uh, a bunch more keys to small streamers. Uh, so you know, just small guys who've got like 50 followers and stuff like that. And then we we went and sort of voyeured uh, as we watched them discover the games. Uh, because it's, streaming is really great for that because you can sit for half an hour and watch someone who you have absolutely no idea what their skill is, who they are, where they are, what they're doing, play a game and discover it and you can see their faces, you can see what they're doing. So you can see the frustration, you can see them throw their controller across the room, you know, kick the cat or whatever. And and that gives you a lot of feedback. So by the time we got to the early access, we'd already done a lot of testing and a lot of balancing. Um, and I think that has probably contributed quite a lot to the success of the game. Uh, Early access is generally for, you know, traditionally in in terms of, I think, what the majority of developers do in early access is for things that are still almost, in some cases, prototypes. They're just like random ideas that someone's tried and put together and thrown up on the internet and said, hey, play this and see what you think. Uh, Whereas we... Put something in there that we'd already spent a lot of time polishing. So people picked it up and they were like, this doesn't suck. It's, <laughs> it kind of feels, it kind of feels nice. This feels good. And I died, but, but that was my fault. So I'm going to keep going, you know, and yeah. instead of rage quitting, they, they actually keep playing. Um, and then of course, you know, we've been, we've just been building on that. So every, every week we push patches, we push updates, we know things, you know, we, we, make things more powerful i don't know if you have you have you played the beta branch
0: uh yes i think i have
1: yeah so we we pushed a beta branch where we completely changed the shield system so that now you can send grenades back towards your enemies and, and that's kind of a nice feeling because if they can throw things through walls why can't you at least exactly. do damage with their, with their bombs if if you take a hit while you're holding a shield you now get like a, a little force field around you so you get iframes effectively after your after your hit so that makes shields much more interesting we nerfed the hell out of the poison damage because that was
0: well oh thank god a little bit over the yeah. top <laughs>
1: so, yeah so i mean it, it's definitely the whole reason behind what what we were doing
0: yeah and i i think you're right about early access i kind of see it as a writer when you have an editor sometimes you lean too much on them and you give them work a feature review or something that you know isn't really complete but you're hoping that they can kind of spot it in the same way that uh, maybe a developer throws out an idea that's very rough and says like ah hopefully the community will do something with this then i'll work on it from there and it sounds like what you did is kind of what i usually encourage writers to do it's like hey consider that first draft almost not complete but as polished as you really can get it before you send it to someone so then i think you're right i think that's why people responded to it so early and people didn't immediately just scoff at it and say like ah this is this is like a super early alpha. Like I have nothing I really want to do with this. W- were there any entire enemy types that you had to cut over your play testing where it's like, that's just unfair. Like that just doesn't work.
1: Not so much, but their design did change in a way that you could almost consider it having, having been cut. Um, uh, yeah, the, the, basically stuff like, I don't know, like the, the, the spinning, uh, characters that you find in Dark Souls. We've got one of those guys who can sort of pin you against you a wall and uh, do a lot of damage. And there were moments where we were like, yeah, we're not going to put that in right now. Like, he's actually not in the game at the moment because we were like, yeah, this is, this is just not balanced enough. Um, the, the phaser guy, the, the guy who follows you around, uh, teleporting after you. He, he underwent a lot of changes. Because, yeah. uh, you know, at some stage, he was like super fast. All, all of the elites, for example, where they took a lot of time to sort of polish and, and go over. And I mean, they're still, it's all still a work in progress, obviously, because it's an early access. Um, but not anything that we've absolutely taken out so far. All the mushroom guys in the, in the, in the, 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 pre- the sewer deaths, the, or the ancient, the old sewers they're called nowadays. Like those guys, when we, when we first put him in, had no visual cue that they were going to attack you. So you'd just be sort of walking oh along and then boom, you get a big bunch of spikes in the butt. And it was, yeah, that was, that was, that was rage inducing. Um, so we ended up like, we didn't take them out, but they've been changed in such a way now that they're like, I mean, personally, I'm remembering the the battle days. For me, they're
0: just like these fluffy little creatures that I go up and tickle and say
1: goodbye to now. <laughs> so
0: How many people actually worked on this game? Like what is, what's the size of your studio?
1: Yeah, so uh, Motion Twin's been around since 2001. Uh, started out as like four guys in an apartment making little Flash games. And it's gone from everything all the way up to, I think we were like 17 when we were as at our biggest, all the way down to, to this team, which was uh, six members of the core team. So you got four developers, uh, two artists, and they do like all of the production. And then you've got myself uh, on marketing, business, production, like producing all the stuff that the developers don't want to do. Uh, we've got a freelance sound guy who's always in, the, you know, he's just here all the time. So he's kind of like, you know, part of the family nowadays. And uh, we got an intern who helps us out with uh, marketing, communication and all that kind of stuff. So there's nine of us uh, most days in the office, but
0: six core members of the team. Have you guys been kind of, shocked or overwhelmed by the early reaction because we talked about genre fatigue and how there's a lot of games like this out there and you know, the game you were starting on wasn't even this. It's gone through a bunch of different iterations. So, I mean, for you I I remember seeing, uh, I think it was Justin McElroy's Polygon Review and I've had him on the podcast before and I had, had not honestly heard of the game before and read it and was like oh my god and then started reading other reactions and I felt like all of my Twitter was talking about this. So for you, even though it is early access and you're not done, you still have a lot to do, has it kind of been maybe a little shocking to see how positive and how widespread that early reaction has been.
1: Yeah, man. I mean, that's, you could say that, uh, but that would be a vast, vast understatement. (laughs) Um, It's yeah, it's, it's, it has been just incredible. We, we, we sort of took bets uh, as we were going into it about how many copies we might manage to sell. Mm.
0: uh, And we were all way off. How off, if you don't mind me asking, like, is it, Crazy high,
1: uh, hundred and fifty to two hundred percent off. <laughs> Jesus. So yeah, <laughs> like I mean, in my case, I was about a thousand percent off because you know, obviously, my job is to be the pessimist. And yeah. I was like, yeah, maybe we'll sell twenty thousand copies or something like that in the first week, and yeah, it was a lot more than that. <laughs> so it, it, it's just been phenomenal. I mean, not only not only from the press because that was that was my biggest worry was okay, I'm I'm pitching another. 2D pixel art roguelite to people who have seen and played thousands of these games like that's that's a hard sell um so to see you know i mean even just to get a review on polygon of of an early access indie title is just that it's like just yeah. tough. what do you what do you <laughs> what do you say to that i mean we were just we were frothing we've just been so stoked i mean it's a like every chance we get whenever we talk to people we're like man thank you thanks for getting behind the game thanks for, for making this possible because it's just exceeded all expectations in a way that we we really didn't expect. I mean, we hoped, like there's that little part of you that's like, come on, let it be a hit. <laughs> but when you when you see the figures and you've worked in the industry for long enough, you know that there's a very good chance that it won't be. So it was it, it's been amazing.
0: Is it weird to see reviews of a game that you know you're not done with? Like would you prefer having them kind of do early impressions than wait for an actual score at the end or have the scores been high enough that you just don't care?
1: <laughs> yeah that was that was actually that's that's sort of a funny thing because uh i when i started was very careful to be like hey if you're going to do a review of this game could you call it a preview or a first impression or an early impressions or whatever uh but then you know when polygon slaps a nine out of ten on your game even though it's 50 percent of the content you know early access that's like a it's a huge endorsement yeah. so i mean it's part of me that's like well i hope they follow up uh, and give it like you know 19 out of 20 for, for, <laughs> for, for once we hit version 1.1.0, 1. But, uh, I really don't know what to think about it in, in that sense. It's sort of, as you said, it's just been so unexpected and overwhelming that I haven't actually sat down and thought, hmm, strategically, is this a good thing or a bad thing yet? Um, I, I guess I hope that we haven't set the bar too high for ourselves. That's the, the big, sort of question because now we have to really really make sure that every single update that we push and everything that we push is right on target so that at the end of the day when when we leave early access not only is it as good as it was at the day that we went in but it's better and that it that it actually lives up to those awesome reviews because you know you've got journalists and, and game critics who are saying man this this is a really awesome game so you don't want to sort of screw it up as, you, yeah, as you're going is, through is that
0: almost just more pressure for every single, like the entire rest of the development, more pressure than you ever expected because of the early positive reaction? Because from what you've been saying, it sounds like instead of maybe dealing with tens of thousands like you expected, you're closer to the hundreds of thousands of people who are now playing this game. So is that, I mean, I'm guessing, again, the success is, that's not the worst pressure in the world, but is it more pressure? Yeah, it's definitely more pressure.
1: I mean, we, we the, the bee consumption after work has gone through the roof and we thought it was pretty high before, <laughs> before we launched the game. So it's, um... It, I mean, it, it like you say, it's it's a it's a nice pressure to have, but at the same time, it definitely makes us very careful about how we go forward. So, for example, we knew that we wanted to go down the beta branch and, and the main branch route, but now when we push something, even when we push into beta, we're sort of paying attention, make sure it's good, make sure it's really good. You know, don't don't push something that's subpar and it's going to make us look like a bunch of amateurs. Um, and then we spend, we're spending more time than we sort of had planned in, with our beta periods because of that. Cause now we know like, okay, like you say, there's, it's not just 20,000 people playing the game. It, it's, it's a lot more. It's hundreds of thousands of people who, who are playing the game. So if we push out some buggy, broken patch, uh, to all of these people at once, then you're going to hit mixed reviews. You're going to get people saying, Oh, guys, what are you doing? Um, so it's pressure. It's good pressure. But it definitely makes us think very carefully about how we, we, we behave as we go
0: forward. Yeah, and the Polygon review we talked about at length, and that's what kind of turned me on to it. But was there any other single review, or even a YouTube video, or a streamer who latched onto the game that really kind of put it over the top in terms of popularity for you? Because I remember when we were doing "Here They Lie," like every once in a while you get like, "Oh, here's a, a Game Informer's like an, an eight and a half, or like GameSpot was an eight, or there was this German YouTuber with like five million subscribers just suddenly playing the entire game, and you're like, "Holy shit!" And you start like it catches mm-hmm. on in a way that you might have never expected. So, like, was there anything else that you saw? Were you're like didn't expect that sort of coverage and suddenly it kind of put you in a new spotlight
1: yeah uh i think the the biggest aspect of that would have been twitch for us uh i mean you know that that was part of the marketing strategy right from the beginning so we really hoped that that would work but then to actually see it work i mean at one stage we were like third on twitch third most watched game i mean you know obviously when lyric rolls over and plays a game that that makes a, a like a lot of players but then we had him and double his audience playing the game all at once. Oh, in one my period God. There. So we, yeah, that was just like outrageous. But, and I mean, I, uh, what I love about, about Twitch and, and, and this platform is that the, the, the guys are usually super cool. Like the, the, the streamers are, are really cool people. So, um, it was actually Peeve who he, he found out about us during the green light. Uh, so that's, that's a subject we might talk about if we have the time. Oh, yeah. Um, but he he saw it when he was doing, like, green light impressions, and he said, oh, dude, this looks cool. Send me a key when it comes out. And I didn't know who he was. Like, I sort of didn't really follow that that side of things too much myself. Um, and so I said, okay, cool. You've got a big Twitter account. I'll put you down on the list. And, and so I reached out to him uh, just before it came out and I said, "You yeah, man, here's that key you wanted. Uh, let us know what you're thinking. And then to see a guy who's got – you know, like a 1, thousand, fourteen, sixteen hundred people watching him play, play it like every day for a week. Uh, it's, it's phenomenal. I mean, you go on the stream you talk to him and say, Hey man, like what are you thinking of the game? Get involved in the, in the chat and stuff that, that was for us the moment where things really started to pick up because other people are watching him play. You know, he hangs out with Zeke and other guys. And so all of a sudden they're all saying, Hey, what's this game Peace playing? Let's, let's get involved in that. And, uh, and away you go. <laughs> so, <laughs> what that
0: what is... was that green light process like? Because I I think it was, was it today where it closed or something like that? I thought it yeah. was ending. Like, how, was it difficult to get any sort of attention on green light?
1: No. Um, green light, I think had gotten to the point where it was just a formality, depending on the quality of your game. Uh, if you have anything that was sort of halfway decent, it would, gen- it would eventually make its way out of green light. Um, so, you know, being at the end of the day, the devious marketer that I am, I, I sort of saw green light as like free impressions for me. It was just like a free marketing stunt. So, um, you know, we went in with a really polished trailer, really polished green light page. Um, and it was interesting to, to go through the process because we have sort of a community on the internet, you know, of people who were who are here, but we didn't actually tell them about it until uh what two days after the the green light was launched because we wanted to see what the, the base reaction would be and we shot to the top 100 i think in like the first four hours or something like oh that my God. so um yeah we, we we were doing really well so we had people on green light with coming in with their tinfoil hats saying oh it's worth boosting you know you're paying people to send their bots <laughs> to to boost your game and blah 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 but you know, I think Greenlight was was for us just a great opportunity to put something that was quite uh, of of quite high quality in front of people who were used to seeing a bunch of crap, uh, and and for that to to sort of shine. So that was, yeah, that was that was a cool process for us. Well, a little bit sad to to see it go, to be honest, but um, yeah.
0: Has there been any sort of review that you've read so far or impression that actually maybe either a positive or a negative criticism actually surprised you? Because from what I've learned working with the development team, when you're that close to the game, you kind of know what works and what doesn't work. You can kind of look at your game and be honest with yourself and most of the criticisms that come out. You're like, yep, I see it. We already knew that was there. We, We knew that that would maybe rub some people the wrong way. Like, Has there been anything that stuck out to you as like, wow, I did not expect that in this review?
1: I think what I, like, I mean, personally, being the marketing dude, yeah. what I always find interesting about uh, reviews and, and game critics is the amount of attention that they will they will pay to the marketing of the game. Um, so, I don't know whether it was Graham or Brendan from RPS. Like, I mean, we, we're indie, so we follow the indie scene quite a lot, so RPS is kind of like our, our mainstay. If we get an article on RPS, the, the bottles of champagne come out. Um, and... When we, we launched the game, you know, in the, in the Steam blurb, it had the words, uh, roguelite, Metroidvania, and Souls-like combat. And, and I like, I don't, I don't want to try and say that we, we provoked it unilaterally, but, uh, us and a couple of other developers provoked an article. I think, I think it, was from, it was from, Graham, uh, where he was like, all right, listen, listen here. <laughs> if you want to say that a game is a Souls-like game, then and he just he he did this article where he smashed through all of the things that that make a souls like game a souls like game and so it was interesting for me to see how how journalists uh they look at the marketing of a game and actually really take it apart um so that i guess that was sort of the big surprise for us but then hand in hand with that would be the next article that we got on rps which was i think the title was something like um dead cells coagulates in early access is good and 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 so that it was like a a sort of a big turnaround from like all right we're going to lambast these developers for using these stupid buzzwords and marketing terms to all of a sudden "Hmm, we played your game and we are obliged to admit that it's not bad (laughs) so that was yeah that that was that was sort of like a really a really trippy moment for for me as the like the the marketing communication dude.
0: Yeah, when media again, as someone who's who did that side of the business for so long, when I I disagree with them when they try to kind of lean too much on what the developers marketing the game as versus what the game actually is. Like you see a lot of from the early days when there were more preview events, a lot of the preview write ups would kind of be an extension of the press release an extension of what the studio was trying to market the game as instead of like hey we played this here's what we thought you know not based on everything we were told directly so it is you're you're totally right it's strange that so often you do see a lot of games writing that goes directly toward the actual marketing of it instead of hey here's what i played and here's what i thought and like it shouldn't matter if the developer says this is a souls-like game like if you don't feel it is then you don't have to actually write about it in that way so that must be bizarre for you as someone who you are attaching a lot of these different you know buzzwords maybe not the right term but kind of like buzzwords to it and for people to look at it that in depth did you expect that did you expect kind of backlash to all the different titles you were throwing on it
1: yeah yeah i mean I, i i completely get it i understand why journalists do it because from a journalistic perspective i mean you're looking for for stories you're looking for interesting games you're looking for new things so if someone's coming out with another roguelike or or inventing a term like roguevania and then trying to claim that as their own it it can come off as really sort of janky um and so i understand why they pay so much attention to that but then the the thing that matters for me is that the marketing has to match up with the game if you're if you're trying to make out that your games are souls like but then the person actually tests it and was like, this is just no, just no, get out of here. <laughs> then, then, then that's where they, they have a legitimate grievance. So I think, uh, for us, when, you know, when RPS come out and say, it's not just a Rovania, it's a damn good Rovania. That's, that's cool. That, that means that, okay, you know, we went out on a limb, you know, we, we took some stupid word that a developer thought up while he was taking the piss out of me and used it in the marketing. And, it is actually representative of what the game is. So yeah, we expected it. We understand it. Uh, it sometimes is surprising you know, and you know, from when it's criticizing your own work, there's that little knee-jerk reaction of, shut up. Don't touch my stuff. But, uh, yeah, no, as long as they play the game and then, and then like you say, put out their own thoughts, actually critique it and go from what we're trying to say to what they're trying to say. There's a YouTube, a, a guy who did a video on it uh i can't remember his name it was was a really great video and and he went through everything every single little piece of information we had put out anywhere on the internet he read he read through our blog posts he he looked up the history of the company and 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 that was a moment for me where i was like wow i appreciate that because not only did you take what i said you actually then went and verified it uh tested the game and came up with your own opinion. So he he came out and said, "Yeah, Souls like my, but it's not Souls like at all. You know, it's just got difficult enemies that are pattern based and and weapons that change your, you know, sort of your playstyle. But at the end of the day, it hasn't got the level design, hasn't got this and blah blah blah. And that and so that's fine by me. If he wants to say, look, I reckon I see what they're trying to do. They're trying to communicate an idea, and I think they did that. But no, and I have thirty minutes in my video to tell you why not and what it is. Whereas you know, as a marketer, you have. 150 characters to get that that same information across so
0: it's and a lot of those i'm guessing we've done similar things where you like comb the internet for different videos and different articles and different streams and stuff about your game like i have like two separate or three separate tabs up on TweetDeck deck that just have like here they lie and different variations of that to see what people are talking about and it is cool to maybe you'll get that 30 minute video that poo-poos your idea of making it a soul's like. but other times some of the coolest stuff i've found are these smaller reviews from people with you know, three hundred or maybe even thirty subscribers who talk about the game. That's again in Here They Lie's case, where it was like, man, they got what we were going for, and a lot of stuff like that. Like, have you found any sort of really small YouTube channels or even like articles from smaller sites that maybe even conveyed what you were going for or nailed it in ways that the major sites haven't?
1: Yes, but I would have trouble, like, sprouting the names off uh, off the top of my head here. And because I'm not sitting at my computer, I couldn't actually look them up for you. But, yeah, I mean, that that, like I said, that one YouTube guy, he really, he marked me in the sense that I I listened to it. And I think I even commented, like, I know I commented on his video. I was like, you know, faith in games journalism restored. Because (laughs) it was like, I was like, wow, you you know, like, you had the medium and the format to explain my game better than i do because you know i've got a limited set of tools and time uh and you did and i was like okay and then he, he followed it up as well he sort of said he went with ideas about saying uh, what we could do next or where he hoped we'd take the game and it was interesting to see how on point he was where we were like Ah, oh, wow okay yeah great great way to spoil the freaking <laughs> the, the plot twist man um, so Yeah, we've definitely had that moment where we've read stuff from from smaller people who are are passionate about the game and have taken the time to look at it and and just been like, wow, nice job, man. Super, super nice job. Uh,
0: And you kind of outlined earlier you know, what you want to see from Dead Cells moving forward, kind of your, your game plan for it. But to wrap things up a bit, I mean, I'm going to be continuing to play the hell out of it, but what can people expect from Dead Cells who are playing it now that you do have this major audience out there who's really into it? Like, what can they look forward to in terms of updates and uh kind of when this thing will actually come out
1: yeah so uh i guess the big stuff that we're going to do is obviously console uh so if you're sending us twitter messages asking if it will be on ps4 and switch or whatever uh yes we hope so we're working on it um and and in terms of gameplay we would really love to explore uh speedrun stuff uh and challenge runs so for example allowing um, a daily challenge with a fixed seed so everyone gets to run through the same thing with the same gear to, to actually say, okay, well, I'm good at this game and I can prove it and put your name on a on a level. Um, what else? More bosses, obviously. Mm. So, you know, we sort of promised that there will be at least two more, but that is the absolute bare-ass minimum. We would love to do much more than that. And if we have the time, we definitely will. So keep your eyes out for that. Uh, more exploration. Uh, so you're going to be running through areas. I mean, at the moment, once you unlock the runes, you might not have a particular incentive to go anywhere else. But uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna really work on that. Uh, what else? Uh, obviously, just more content, but. Yeah, I guess pay attention to the the speed running stuff and, and maybe uh, some Twitch integration things that we'd like to sort of test out, and uh, and yeah, I don't want to I don't want to engage the the guys too much, you know that's like the classic indie developer problem, like hey I'd like to do this, and then that comes off as a promise, and so everyone yep. sort of runs with it. So yeah, I'll stay circumspect in that regard.
0: <laughs> Well, Steve, I mean, no matter what, like, I'm I'm super excited to see where this goes. It's just cool to watch a smaller developer have this interesting idea. And it's a really great game. But you also kind of struck lightning in a bottle in terms of the coverage and in terms of just your release window. So it's cool to see everything come together and for you to have what you described as like maybe 2000% more success than you expected. So yeah, Dead Cells is amazing. If anyone hasn't played it, you should. It's, it's really, really cool. And yeah, I look forward to seeing more from you guys in the near future. Awesome. Luke, thanks so much for having us on the show. Absolutely. And thank you everyone for listening. Hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.